The 2021 UN Climate Change Conference held in Glasgow, Scotland, was heralded by many as the most important international cooperation on climate change this decade. The conference aimed to strengthen and set pathways to reach the Paris Climate Agreement to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees made at the conference in 2015. But as the dust settles on this highly anticipated event, what has it actually achieved? How has Australia's role at the conference impacted our response to climate change? In this special episode of Think Sustainability, I'm joined by Dr. Sven Teska, Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures, and Dr. Cameron Tonkinwise, Research Director of the Design Innovation Research Centre at the University of Technology, Sydney, as we weigh up COP26. I'm Sophie Ellis, and you're listening to Think Sustainability. Yeah, my name is Dr. Sventeska. I'm an associate professor at the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Um, my research uh, focus is uh, on 100% renewable energy concepts for whole countries, for industries. So we basically provide benchmarks for net zero concepts for whole countries, but also for chemical industry like uh, cement, steel industry. And I'm involved in the process of the climate conferences since um, COP1. So I've been to COP1. Um, as you probably hear from my accent, I'm originally German. So it was in Berlin in 1995. And I went to 16 COPs out of the 26. So I'm quite involved in that process. Uh, so I'm Cameron Tongenwise. I'm a professor of design studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, most of my research focuses on uh, developing ways in which human-scale designers can contribute to systems-level change, something that we call transition design. So this is the role that uh, product and communication designers can play in facilitating the creation of new kinds of habits, uh, new kinds of built environments um, that are going to be more equitably sustainable. Now, to start us off, this year, the tone of the Glasgow Climate Conference has been particularly pivotal. Boris Johnson, in his introductory speech, even called it one minute to midnight in the doomsday clock. Sven, as you just mentioned, you've been to 16 of these conferences. Can you tell us a little bit about the mood on the ground at the conference? And was this a make or break, now or never type environment? So I have been to um, 16 out of the 26 COP and in the, in the first five years, um, it was actually the problem that most of the governments did not believe that there is climate change. It took another five years that um, they accepted that there is climate change. And uh, until, let's say, around 2003, four governments accepted that there is climate change, but they're probably not caused by humans. And then another five years, it uh, took uh, to actually uh, get the message across that if we want to stop climate change, we have to decarbonize. Finally, in 2015, we uh, managed to get the Paris Climate Agreement, which uh, should have, have happened six years earlier at COP9 in Copenhagen, but it failed. So finally, in 2015, um, the COP21 achieved the Paris Climate Agreement, which was a major step. And then it was agreed at that time that in five years, so in 2020, uh, we should have the rules and the set 
to implement um, the Paris Climate Agreement. Due to COVID, that has been delayed for uh, another year. So in, in Glasgow, we were hoping to get all the promises and all the different frameworks in place. So sort of the feeling, the, the atmosphere on the ground is everyone was looking, everyone was hoping we finally get something in place, which is more than we should do that. We were hoping to get something in place that it tells us how we actually implement that. And we went there, let's say, halfway. Yeah, I'm interested in, in, in your comment, we went there halfway. Sven, from, from you attending and, and also Cameron as someone who you know has vested interest in, in how these international talks go in, in your work with sustainability, how can we measure the success of an international conference with the significance of COP? How can we actually measure a successful COP? What would a COP that, you know, we got all the outcomes that we were looking for look like? Well, if I may start from the uh, practical point of view, we should have um, hit the 100 billion annual climate finance target uh, for developing countries. We should have completed uh, Article 6 uh, with a clear set of rules about international carbon trading. Uh, we should have had uh, the transparency reporting measurements in, to- in, in terms of how do we actually report um, progress in the Paris Climate Agreement, um, uh, Agreement implementation. What we achieved is we got a lot of pledges, but you can't really compare them because they all have different time frames and different different times when they actually start implementing. What we need to see is a very clear plan for the next five to ten years because we need to uh, reduce carbon in the next five to ten years by at least fifty percent. So targets for twenty forty and twenty fifty are relatively useless um, if they do not reduce carbon in the next five years. From outside, I think Sven's given a fantastic version of it from the inside. What it seems to me that the, the, the conference is not managing to convince people outside of its system of the merit of what it is doing. It doesn't seem to be displacing a lot of the conversation outside. Now, it's not designed to do that. The way Sven's described it, it is there precisely to allow scientists and politicians to kind of agree to the kind of frameworks that will allow us to understand that we are actually making a difference and for people to to come to kind of shared agreement about how they're going to proceed. But to outside the system, it's uh, it's a way of displaying that people are actually doing something. And I think this time round, particularly in the Australian context, uh, it's it's been really exploited uh, in terms of that theatricality. So in fact, there definitely has been progress. There were some some really significant things that happened, kind of, you know, actually getting mention of fossil fuels, even if the language was kind of watered down at the end, for example. Um, you know, the methane agreements, these kinds of things were, were really significant. But um, I think the, the way in which it, it sort of is being perceived externally as only getting halfway there means that uh, it's, not doing, it's not doing the job that we need, which is convincing large numbers of people to completely start realigning you know, how they're living. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's quite frustrating to that extent 
that I don't think outside of the COP it's managed to establish the credibility of what's happening at COP. We saw a number of commitments made in addition to the Paris Agreement, one of which the methane pledge, which is to cut 30% of methane emissions by 2030. Now, over 100 countries signed this pledge. How significant was this agreement? Is this something we expected to see come out of this COP? It is significant, but the problem we have with those pledges is that we need to understand that if we want to implement the Paris Climate Agreement, and if we want to um, achieve a global warming limit by 1.5 degrees, we have to phase out fossil fuels. There is absolutely no other way around it. So net zero means net zero energy carbon emission. Methane is, uh, the pledge is good, Um, Methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. It's 24 uh, times more uh, stronger than uh, one unit of uh, CO2. However, uh, a lot of um, that comes actually from uh, um, fossil fuel uh, production, like from gas. The the main countries um, in that process over the last 26 years were always the US, Russia, India, Saudi Arabia, Canada and Australia. Um, those are the most the countries who pushed hardest um, to not phase out fossil fuels, while other countries, engineering countries like my home country Germany, is pushing quite hard because they see an energy transition is actually good for the business. And then the third party is all the developing countries who, which is really understandable, try to get um, finance out of it to actually get help to to um, set up their energy supply because. Many of the uh, developing countries don't even have a proper energy supply. If you try to get 200 countries to to agree in a consensus, it's a really difficult thing. And uh, besides the fact that uh, there are a lot of um, democracies involved, which means um, the governments change after five years. So what they agreed five years ago might not be in line with the government now in charge. And that's another problem. This methane pledge, Cameron, was one of the pledges that Australia did not sign on to. What do you think that bodes for public perception of Australia's commitment to net zero on an international stage? Um, Just to um, shamefacedly say, uh, no, our economy depends upon the extraction of fossil fuels, which releases methane and, um, you know, agriculture. And so we are just not going to do that often without justification, occasionally with the kind of justification, you know, that the overall emissions uh, on a a collective basis are are small, whereas on a per capita basis, they're extraordinarily high. Yeah, it's particularly frustrating to feel that at this moment in the kind of crisis, the governments uh, of Australia can feel so emboldened um, to just simply refuse to sign on these things and, and not even make an effort and just just absolutely destine the, the country to, to being based on fossil fuels and agriculture and extractive industries. Yeah, just an anecdote. Um, the um, Australian pavilion uh, was back-to-back to the methane pledge pavilion, so they were actually looking at each other two weeks and it's like they were really physically next to each other 
you know, there was Australia and across the road was, across the, the, uh, the pathway was Brazil. And then down there, there was the Nordic countries like Iceland and Greenland. And it's, it's a wild mix of different countries. And you see that um, uh, one pavilion pushes that right next to, the other, to, to that pavilion, another country has the exact opposite proposal. In my culture, in Samoa, there's a proverb that goes, e pala ma'a aile pala upu. It means that even stones decay, but words remain. How switching one word or number could reframe worlds. How climate action can be vastly different from climate justice. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25% not the 50-50 split that was promised nor needed given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. There was an emphasis on the notion of equitable establishment of climate action, ensuring the justice, if you like, in climate justice. We saw this in things like the Clean Energy Fund for Developing Nations. I want to talk now about the differing importance of mitigation versus adaptation and the cost of both mitigation of the effects of climate change that are already being felt, we think, in places like our Pacific neighbours. Cameron, I might just get your comment on the mitigation versus adaptation balance, particularly in your perspective of working extensively in transition design, so large-scale societal transition to more equitable and sustainable futures. So this is the really major challenge And it's obviously an incredibly complicated situation in which we are trying to both mitigate and adapt at the same time. And so this is a very complicated situation in which you're trying to work out how to move resources from the way in which they're sunk into current uh, business as usual. You're trying to work out how to generate the funds that would enable you to transition. And then you're having to think about the way in which those two sort of play off each other. It's something that because of that complexity, it's really essential that societies around the world feel like they can trust. The real problem is that it is driving home to people outside the COP that there are simple solutions to this. Technology, not taxes. This kind of sloganeering, green, blue, hydrogen, the the way in which adaptation and mitigation are complicated uh, in, in their effects on each other. And then, of course, there's a whole other layers of complexity on top of that, which is questions of justice, Uh, questions of retroactive justice in terms of people who've already been suffering, justice moving forward in terms of equitable ways in which we proceed. Uh, And these are not merely divisions between developed nations and developing nations. It is always the poorest who are subject to uh, environmental injustice within developed nations. So you then have this whole other layer of complexity of kind of just transitions, which was an agreed to component. Again, one of the the moments of progress in COP26 is a kind of signing to to initiatives coming out of things like the International Labour Organization to ensure that there is some kind of uh, redistributive justice associated with kind of jobs. Where are the the international funds currently centering? Is it more on future and adaption? Or is it on the mitigation of 
effects that are already being felt? Um, well, historically, uh, it was quite interesting that um, the, the progressive forces in the climate conferences actually never really wanted to talk about adaptation because it felt like we are already giving up. So we wanted to um, sort of push mitigation in order to not have to adapt too much. The problem now is that 26 years later, that boat has sailed. We actually have to adapt because of the failure of the international community to reduce carbon emissions 10 years earlier. The good news is that we actually have now technologies, renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies, which make it possible for countries and for economies to thrive without CO2 emission. Right now, the problem we have is the adaptation will be very expensive. And in some cases, there's absolutely no other way. And especially the Pacific Island states need to have a lot of money for adaptation because uh, it already is already started. So it's, it's a bit like a ping pong. Everyone tries to push um, that thing to another country. And uh, the United Nations have very little um, to force OECD countries, let's say, um, to actually put the pledge, uh, put the money on the table. I think Sven's talked a little bit about the costs involved. And we're often hearing that whenever somebody talks about the costs of making uh, societies uh, uh, less climate, in, climate change inducing, that we also need to take into account the cost of not doing something. Yeah, let's let's move to talk about Australia's uh, role at, at COP and also um, some of its climate policies that have emerged in the both in the lead up and and since the conference's conclusion. The government has been vocal about its attitude to letting market forces drive and motivate energy transition in Australia. You know, we had Treasurer Frydenberg state in an interview last week that Australia would change its supply of fossil fuels according to international demand. What are some of the concerns with this attitude? I mean, so I'll, I'll jump in and just say, I mean, it is the most facile understanding of society. There is not this fixed division between sort of doing nothing, markets uh, make decisions, people innovate, technology comes, it progresses, it will fix on the one hand, and having commitments which you actually resource possibly through taxes on the other. So this kind of opposition between technology and taxes totally misses the reality of society, which are the kind of the ways in which we decide what to invest in, what to kind of innovate and work towards in relation to that kind of middle area of innovation. These are, these are things which exist, the whole of society exists in the gap between this kind of facile opposition between technology and taxes or between uh, just letting the market decide and uh, actually making decisions as a society about how we would like to prior prioritize these kinds of developments. So I totally agree. And on, on top of that, um, it is the case that the most economic way of producing electricity right now with new power plants is actually solar, onshore wind and offshore wind. So if 
there would be an actual market approach, uh, we wouldn't go for um, CCS or something like that because that is far more expensive because uh, besides the fact that you can't actually buy it on the market, it's not even available on the market. So if you uh, just go for a market approach, you just go for uh, renewables because they are cheaper. And uh, so it is, uh, it is an interesting approach to say that we, are, we wanted to go the most economic way and then selecting the most expensive, sometimes not even existing technologies. But I have to say that's probably a human thing because um, like um, my former home country, Germany, is pushing very hard against electric mobility because the main uh, industry in Germany is the car industry. And they lost basically at least 10 years in, uh, in the development of electric cars and they lose market shares um, big time on a global level. And it's exactly the same approach. It's just um, the approach to refuse to change a technology, to refuse to adapt, refuse to, refuse to uh, develop their market, their industry further and at some point in time, they realized we are actually too late. We have to now actively fight against transition. The problem we have then is that at some point in time, other companies and other countries uh, will deliver that technology. And um, the countries who fail to change will have an economic a disadvantage and also lose lots of jobs. It's easy as we have these discussions after the conference has concluded to reflect on how things could have been done better and to be, it's important to be critical of how the process could have been better designed. But I want to ask, is there anything that Australia really succeeded in at COP? Well, I mean, if you're long, if you're like 26 years in that process, um, like I was, I have to say after, um, the COP in 2007 or 2008 or so uh, in Copenhagen, I I went went back home at totally frustrated and I thought, I, I'm out of here, I'm out of here. Um, and here we go, 10 years, 12 years later, I'm still in. Um, the thing is, we have no alternative and we actually came quite far with 200 countries. So there's always there's always a huge list what could have been better and and so on but i think in, in the grand scheme of things um, we are much further than five years ago we have uh, a, a lot of good things under development and uh, i also have to say australia on the ground um, actually does very well in terms of renewables um, it would be good to have more support from the federal government, but the state level governments uh, do really good things. So I'm I'm an optimist, and uh, what else can you do? I mean, I I'm an optimist to have at the end of the day a successful process. And yes, it's a bit frustrating that uh, a few words are in that uh, document, which I wouldn't like to see. But at the end, uh, on the other hand, um, technologies are actually now developing and. The not to emit CO2 to produce energy is actually cheaper. So um, that's the good news. You know, the COP process has managed to get us from heading towards four degrees to heading towards two degrees. So the curve is bending um, and that, that's something to be celebrated. I think as Sven indicated, what's kind of interesting is that the theatrics of leaders 
uh, and fossil fuel companies in this case uh, invading the COP space to kind of make announcements or change languages is to some extent lagging. Sven indicates the we're in this very weird situation in this country where, uh, you know, solar rooftop penetration is the highest per capita in the world, uh, you know, more than 3 million houses. It, it's absolutely incredible the speed with which uh, more or less individual households have actually decided to start to transition to other types of energy source. So we are in the middle of an actual transition. So it's very weird because there is this complete disconnect between what has started, which is positive uh, on the ground, and the way in which the federal government wedges uh, the so-called urban elite against uh, coal miners uh, around the country. So it's this, it's this very weird situation. So I think it's important to just recognise there was progress. We are bending the curve. It's not at 1.5 where it should be, um, but it's certainly not at 4. And we got some really interesting things in there. Fossil fuels are mentioned for the first time. Uh, As I said before, we've got just transition mentioned in there. So as a kind of snapshot of where the world is, um, yes, as Sven started, we're halfway. And that halfway is not because governments have been incredibly brave in terms of their policies. It's because there are structural adjustments also associated with ecological politics on the ground. So that's kind of, that's good. Um, on the other hand, as, as I said before, the, the actual way in which the, the debate now about how to proceed is unfolding, the kind of clash between the necessary complexity and comprehensiveness of what this transition will involve and the kind of just totally immature rhetoric we are hearing from so-called leaders in this country uh, is actively dangerous. And it's actively dangerous because obviously COP isn't the only kind of uh, thing in the world at the moment. Um, we're in the middle of trying to sort of negotiate uh, tail end uh, uh, COVID resurgences. We're trying to think about the way in which economies supposedly uh, come back rather than using this as an opposition to transition in, in uh, an opportunity to transition in new directions. So there are all these other things outside. Uh, you know, locally in Australia, the kind of um, uh, rise of of really, I think, quite worrying versions of discourses of freedom uh, are being backed by uh, a really alarmist language uh, coming from increasingly right-wing elements in, in the country, uh, is the context in which we're trying to have a discussion about a major transition. It's very difficult to start talking to people and ma- making adjustments in how they live and the ways in which they work when you've got, uh, you know, people carrying gallows around in the streets demanding a very American version of freedom. So in that context, you know, the, the, the kind of theatrical language emphasis of COP, I think, is really worrying. So we've, we're just in this odd situation where things are happening on the ground, starting to happen on the ground, and yet the actual way in which this is being spun, I think, is extraordinarily uh, counterproductive. What is one thing to come out of this COP26 that really excites you? The most exciting thing for me is that um, I see that the finance industry, the global finance industry, including the insurance industry, actually got it. Um, They 
know that they have to change their investment portfolios and they are really engaged and they have understood that the, the cost of capital for fossil fuel projects is way higher now than for, for example, for renewables uh, projects. So we see that the international finance industry already reacts. And I think that is a very positive thing. That's something we did not see even two years ago. So that's new and that really excites me. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sophie Ellis. Thanks for your company.